Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Shelley Flegel, who is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and the Interim Co-Director of Michigan Neuroscience Institute at the University of Michigan. Her laboratory studies individual differences in vulnerability to mental illness with a focus on addiction. Welcome, Shelley. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with your uh, 2011 paper to set the context for our conversation entitled A Selective Role for Dopamine in Stimulus Reward Learning, in which you say individuals make choices and prioritize goals using complex processes that assign value to rewards and associated stimuli. During uh, Pavlovian learning, uh, previously neutral stimuli that predict rewards can acquire motivational properties becoming attractive and desirable incentive stimuli. So before we get to the details of the Shelley, what exactly is Pavlovian, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, Pavlovian learning? Yes, exactly. Pavlovian learning after Pavlov and Pavlov's dogs. So I'm sure you're familiar with the classic studies by Ivan Pavlov, who was a Russian physiologist and published his famous book in the late 1920s, Condition Reflexes. And in there, he described his series of studies where he would um, expose dogs to cues. Um, these, these cues or stimuli in this case was actually a bell or a metronome, and it was paired with a food reward. And so this is just classical Pavlovian conditioning where the cue predicted delivery of food reward. And what he found was that eventually the dogs would learn this relationship to the point where now they would start salivating just to the cue or just to the bell itself, um, mm-hmm. even before reward was, was delivered. And actually, if you look very closely in, in Pavlov's book, Condition Reflexes, there's actually a chapter in there about individual differences, and he alludes to it throughout. And the fun fact is that he actually named his different experimental subjects and his dogs based on these individual differences and some of the personality traits that were apparent in them. And um, so he would, he and others after him, Carl Zenner was an experimental psychologist after him that 
dove a little bit deeper into these individual differences and found that if you unharness the dogs, so in, in Pavlov's case, the dogs were most often harnessed, meaning that they were on a leash and tied up. He was a physiologist, as I said, and he was interested in the salivatory response and, and getting the gastric juices in the salivation. So they were harnessed in, in part for that reason. When Carl Zenner followed up with similar studies and the dogs were unharnessed, he was able to see even more apparent individual differences in how the dogs would respond to the cue associated with the reward. And so what he found was that some dogs would approach that cue, that stimulus, um, even before reward would be delivered. So it wasn't just a salivatory response, but they were approaching it and they would interact with the cue itself. And then we, we later, um, actually in the 70s, um, Folks actually showed something similar in rats. And then we later kind of rediscovered this phenomenon in our rats in a classical Pavlovian conditioning paradigm. And in our paradigm for rats or rodents, what happens is they're put into a testing chamber. In that chamber, it's relatively dark, an illuminated lever comes out for eight seconds. That lever is actually the, becomes a condition stimulus in this case, because when that lever retracts, it's immediately followed by delivery of food reward in an adjacent food cup. And so it's lever food pairings in this case, the condition stimulus is a lever, the unconditioned stimulus is a food reward. And what we also observed in our rats was that there's great individual variation in how the rats would respond to that cue. And so some rats, <clears throat> they see that cue, they approach it, they interact with it, they gnaw it, they bite on it, almost as if it were the food itself. And then when the cue, the lever retracts, they go to the adjacent food cup and get the food reward. So we call these rats sign trackers because they're tracking the sign, they're attracted to the sign or the cue that, that predicts food delivery in yes. this case. On the other extreme, we have what we call goal trackers. So goal trackers will see the cue for what it is. It's a predictor and they merely go and wait at the food cup for the food to be delivered. And so what's really important here is, is as you mentioned, this is, this is classical Pavlovian conditioning. So what this means is that no response is required for that food to be delivered in the adjacent food cup. It's always going to follow presentation of the lever presentation or that cue presentation. The, the animals simply just go and consume it. And so that's what made it even more interesting is that no response is required, yet these sign tracking rats are interacting with that sign with that cue as if a response were required. But what they're actually doing is that they're attributing what we call excessive incentive motivational value. So this, this increased motivational value to the cue so that the cue itself becomes um, what, what Kent Barrett just called a motivational magnet. That cue alone is attractive. Yeah. And so for, for sign trackers, that cue um, is this you know, incentive stimulus now. Now it itself is attractive. Whereas for goal trackers, the cue is merely a predictive stimulus signaling um, that reward is going to be delivered in the adjacent food cup. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that's very interesting. Uh, so it's, it's intuitive uh, from an experimental perspective if you condition um, a subject uh, with, uh, with some predictive power of a cue, uh, then the subject can associate the cue with a reward. Mm -hmm. um, but, but more interesting um, is that, as you say, individuals vary quite a bit in this response, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so you mentioned sort of two different, maybe two different types of uh, individuals, in this case, rats. Uh, one type um, almost interacts with the cue mm -hmm. that is needed, right, uh, for, for the food to arrive. The other is using the cue more strategically, uh, essentially using it totally as a predictive mechanism and, and get ready for the food to arrive. And so, 
uh, and you see this this sort of individual variation in all animals, right? Not just in rats. Well, so so yeah, it, it's definitely apparent across species. So there's some remarkable studies showing this in fish, so showing this variation in Japanese quail, um, in raccoons, um, and so it is across species. And we are um, attempting to translate it to humans to see if, in a laboratory setting, it's apparent um, in humans as well. And of course, you can imagine um, situations that humans come across every day where. where can you know imagine that one may be more likely to sign track or goal track, and I do just want to say that um, you know some people will automatically assume that it's a sign tracking response that's mal that's um, maladaptive, and and while that is true in many situations, you can also imagine in the wild for both animals and and humans that um, you know being a sign tracker could be adaptive at some points, whereas being a goal tracker could be adaptive at some points. Um, so so I think it's important to note that. Both can be adaptive and both could be maladaptive depending on the situation. Yeah. And, and so sign tracking is possible only if you can interact with the cue. So, for, so suppose you have another type of cue, like a bell or something. Uh, how right. will the two types differ in such a case? Right. So, so that's a great question. And, and we know from old studies that the the um, inherent properties of the conditioned stimulus matter a lot. And so um, there's actually some great studies um, with Japanese quail looking at sexual conditioning, showing that their approach behavior, behavior towards a conditioned stimulus that predicts the availability of um, a receptive mate, um, their approach behavior and their condition response um, is determined by the qualities of that condition stimulus. So whether or not, for example, it has feathers on it or if it's just a plain brick. And so that matters in terms of those types of properties. And But it also matters how manipulable that stimulus is. So you're, you're perfectly right in that we have a lever as our condition stimulus and they can easily, man, easily manipulate it. But when the stimulus is more diffuse, like a sound or a bell, there's nothing to manipulate. If the stimulus for a rat, for example, is a key light, then um, their sign tracking behavior might look quite different where you would likely get approach behavior, but not necessarily interaction with that light. Um, in contrast, it's also species dependent, um, whereas in pigeons, if you now have a, a light on a wall that predicts um, food delivery, the pigeons will actually peck at that light. Um, and there's, again, remarkable classic studies showing that um, these pigeons at sign track, their condition response um, depends on the unconditioned stimulus or the reward. So these classic studies in pigeons showed that a rat will, or sorry, a pigeon will um, key peck at the light with an open beak if the reward is a, a pellet, essentially a grain pellet. But if the reward is a liquid, you can actually see these videos where the pigeons are actually now keeping um, their beak somewhat more, more closed. And you can see their gullet movement as if they're swallowing the, the liquid itself as they're pecking the key light. Mm -hmm. So that the, the inherent properties of both the conditioned stimulus and the unconditioned stimulus matters. In terms of sign and goal tracking, we know that it matters as well. And we know that sign tracking might look different depending on the properties of the stimulus. Yeah, so I was also wondering, Shelley, I obviously don't know anything about it. Uh, in the wild, uh, sign tracking may have had some advantages, right? Perhaps sign tracking signals that uh, the animal is, you know, is basically uh, signaling to competition. Mm -hmm. It has already, you know, <laughs> claimed the, the food that is, the, that is going to arrive. Um, do, do you see there is anything like that going on? Uh, if so, 
uh, do you see a difference between sort of wild animal and uh, more domesticated um, lab rats? Yeah, to my knowledge, um, unfortunately, I don't think the studies have been done looking at wild animals, but it's definitely something I'm very interested in, um, you know, not just in wild rodents, but also in um, non-human primates, I think would be really fascinating to observe in the wild in terms of determining whether or not they're sign or goal trackers, because I'm sure everybody can, you know, think of their social circle and identify who, who they predict or who they, who they think might be a sign tracker or a goal tracker based on their behavior. So in humans, it's kind of easy to imagine. In um, the wild, you know, I think a good example is, um, you know, a rodent and having to decide whether or not they're going to go after that cue for, for food availability in the middle of a field and what, and they'll have to weigh the pros and cons, right, and, and decide whether or not it's worth putting themselves after, you know, going after that cue that may predict reward delivery if that also means um, increased potential of being predated upon. And so um, there's many scenarios like that you can imagine. But like I said, unfortunately, I don't think much has been done, um, at least not in rodents. And as far as my, I'm, as far as I know, also not in non-human in non primates um, in terms of observations in the wild. Yeah. As, as I mentioned before, there have been studies done in fish, but even those um, with the cod were done um, in fish in the laboratory. Hmm. And, and so in the paper, you talk about a, a neuroscience basis to it, and uh, that is dopamine, the neurotransmitter, uh, acting in the stimulus reward learning, uh, and so, so dopamine. So, exactly what do you find uh, between these two behaviors? There is a there is a difference in in dopamine release and and actions. Right. So, one of the um, biggest advantages of this model is that it provided us the opportunity for really the first time in the field to dissociate what we call this incentive learning mechanism and these predictive learning mechanisms. And so we knew that if, uh, if a cue predicts reward delivery, then dopamine kind of tracks that cue and can give an anticipatory response that's referred to as prediction error. So that is the prior studies had shown it started out in non-human primates and then eventually was shown in other rodents and other species. These prediction error studies, and, and the reason this theory came about was that it was shown that if you expose animals to a cue and a reward, what you initially see is that prior to conditioning, prior to that cue attaining value, you have an increase in dopamine in response to that reward receipt. But after pairing that cue with the reward, what you saw was a shift in dopamine from the reward to the cue. So that is dopamine would now um, peak in response to the cue once it attained those predictive properties, and then you wouldn't see as much of a peak in response to the reward delivery. But what we what was uh, um, we were able to show using this animal model again because what we now based on what I told you a few minutes ago we now know using this model that we can dissociate predictive and incentive learning so that is a cue is a predictor and a list is a condition, condition response for both that's the only type of learning that goal trackers rely on but yeah. for sign trackers a cue has this extra incentive motivational value and so if we look at dopamine what we wanted to do is we use fast scan cyclic voltammetry in collaboration with Jeremy Clark and Paul Phillips at um, University of Washington in Seattle. And we use fast and cyclic voltammetry, which allowed us to look at dopamine release in the core of the nucleus accumbens at a very um, high temporal resolution, so sub-second level. And then we saw in doing that is that we saw that shift from the reward to the cue in sign trackers in dopamine. So now
now with learning, the sign tracker show increased dopamine in response to the cue. But what was most interesting is that we did not see that shift in dopamine in goal trackers. So mm -hmm. in goal trackers, that you know, in slight increase in, do in dopamine remained um, in response to the reward and it never shifted to the cue itself. So what this hinted at was that then, you know, maybe it's not predictive error encoding, but it's actually incentive encoding, um, in incentive value encoding that dopamine is doing. And so to further test that, we then administered dopamine antagonists and showed, sure enough, that if you block dopamine, and this was originally done with just systemic injections, and if you block dopamine, you block the learning of a sign tracking response, and you don't affect the learning of a goal tracking response. And later studies were followed up with um, by Ben. Saunders and Terry Robinson's lab. And what they showed was that you can locally block dopamine in the nucleus of commons where we initially had recorded dopamine, and again, show that you're blocking the expression of sign tracking behavior without affecting goal tracking behavior. And so all of that led us to conclude then that dopamine, um, at least under these conditions in this animal model, dopamine is in fact encoding the incentive value and not the predictive value of reward cues as was initially thought. Yeah. How do you how do you actually measure the goal tracking behavior, Shelley? So in your experiment with rats, the shiny lever that comes out, if you are goal tracking, um, you don't interact with it. But what do you do at that? I yeah, so the goal trackers actually, as soon as that cue is presented, they go to the food cup and they do actually put their nose into the food cup since, such that we can record responses um, in their vicinity and entering of the food cup during cue presentation. And, and it's important to note that both um, sign and goal trackers are learning a condition response. For sign trackers, that condition response is directed towards the lever. For goal trackers, that condition response is directed towards the food cup. And the learning of that condition response that we can measure by looking at things like latency, how quickly do they go to their target of interest once that cue is presented, that learning curve is exactly the same for sign and goal trackers. And that's really important for us to be able to say, look, you know, they're both attributing predictive value. And we know that because the cue is eliciting a condition response for both doing so at the same rate. And again, it's just the location of that response and the topography of that response that differs. Yeah, that's so interesting. So both are learning uh, a similar process, but dopamine is not needed for the goal trackers to, right. to learn this. Right, exactly. And so uh, doesn't dopamine also have some sort of memory aspects to it? So, so how, do we, how do we sort of, you know, from a neuroscience perspective, explain that? Right. So, um, you know, given the sort of inherent controls within our animal model, and that is that they're both exposed to the same thing. They're both learning a condition response. The cue attains predictive value for both. But for sign trackers, it also attains incentive motivational value. All of that led us to be able to conclude and, and to explain it by the fact that dopamine seems to be encoding the, it, at least dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, in the core of the nucleus accumbens during this task, seems to be encoding the incentive value of the cue. That is incentive motivational properties or incentive learning rather than predictive learning. Okay, okay. Uh, and so, um, are there situations, so if you are uh, sign tracking uh, rad, you will always remain to be sign tracking in different experiments, you don't switch? <laughs> right, um, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a really good question. And so um, that's, that's 
what we do in the lab right now is to see if we can manipulate the brain in some way to indeed switch a sign tracker to a goal tracker or a goal tracker to a sign tracker. Under normal conditions, however, without pharmacological manipulation or neurobiological manipulation, yes, typically a sign tracker is always a sign tracker. If anybody changes, actually with prolonged training, we can see maybe five or 10% of goal trackers will eventually start to exhibit some sign tracking response, but their rate of learning the sign tracking response is much slower and comes sort of after the fact that that, you know, with those initial trials, they're learning, clearly learning a goal tracking response. But, you know, the definition of sign tracking is that this is a very um, compulsive behavior. It's, it's hard to break. Um, and so once a sign tracker in our hands, again, under conditions where you're not manipulating the brain in any way, they're essentially always a sign tracker. Hmm. If you have some, uh, I don't know, this was done, Sherry, if you have some sort of uh, error uh, in the experiment, meaning the food doesn't show up maybe 15% of the time even after the queue, uh, queue arrived. So, so there is an error, uh, a random error introduced to it. Uh, who is more likely to, uh, you know, to do it better? <laughs> is it a sign tracker or the gold tracker? Right. So if there's... Um... If there's error or, or probabilities introduced after they've already acquired the behavior, yeah. a goal tracker is going to be more likely to adapt um, and be more flexible. And so that's something, another characteristic that's sort of um, inherent within sign trackers is that they're um, not able to be flexible when it comes to interpreting the value of a discrete cue. And so again, once that value is attributed, um, the behavior that elicits and, the and that value itself is difficult to alter. Um, you know, there's been a number of studies where you can do just that. And, and again, this gets back to some of these classic studies where you change probabilities or you change um, the hunger state of the animal. And all of these things can change um, inherent tendencies um, in some form or another towards either sign or goal tracking by changing the experimental parameters. But once they've already acquired under certain conditions and they've acquired these behaviors, then it's going to be more likely that goal trackers will be able to use um, contextual cues, especially to regulate their responses, you know, more adaptively um, relative to sign trackers. Hmm. So would you say the sign tracking behavior is almost instinctual? We know that dopamine is involved uh, in that incentive aspect of it. So it is, it is sort of uh, driven by the hardware, isn't it? Right. And so, yeah, that, that's also something we're trying to determine in my lab is, is how much of this is, um, I don't know if I would use the word instinctual, you know, I feel like oftentimes when people think of instincts, they think of, of um, being adaptive, um, yeah. but I inherent, you know, so we know from um, some selectively bred rat lines, for example, that um, if you breed animals on a given related behavioral trait, you also see that these animals um, are more likely to exhibit sign tracking behavior. So we know we can breed for these types of traits. Um, we know that there is a heritable component. And so the notion that we're going after in the lab right now is that, yeah, it, yes, in these animal models, um, at least in rodents, it seems that you're born with this inherent tendency. And now we want to know what we can do to um, prevent that tendency or to the, allow and permit the animals to better adapt to their environment. Hmm. Um, I, I know that the experiments are not really done on non-human primates, but what is your, what is your feel as you go to higher order animals, 
would you see more gold tracking <laughs> or right. another way around? Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. And when we initially started talking about translating this animal model to humans, you know, we had a, a big group working on this and our general consensus was that if we tried to move this um, to humans, you know, nobody's ever going to sign track, you know, humans are too smart <laughs> for that. If they're in a laboratory situation, why would they sign track? And in fact, um, that is not what we're finding. And so we found that even, you know, this is all very preliminary unpublished data, but um, it seems to be that in adult humans and young adult humans, um, sorry, young adult meaning actually college students. So college students and, and slightly older humans as well, um, even under variable conditions, you can see a great tendency of them to sign track. And we can change a parameter so that we change that um, distribution of whether or not they're sign or goal trackers or their tendencies. But for the most part, we seem to be able to capture both sign and goal tracking in humans. And what the data is starting to look like as we've looked across ages. Is so we've looked at um, five to seven-year-olds and nine to 13-year-olds and then young adult and adult um, humans. And um, especially in children, what we saw, and this was, was in retrospect should have been predicted, but in younger children, we see that the population seems to be skewed towards sign trackers. And so mm -hmm. these are studies where we actually took a very similar apparatus to what we use in rats. In this case, it's um, a big green Lego box that these kids are placed in front of and an illuminated lever comes out and it retracts and the kids get an M&M and adjacent food cup. <laughs> and when we did that to five to seven year olds, um, what we saw is that the majority of the population in around 50 subjects, both males and females, um, were skewed towards sign trackers. So that is, we had um, zero pure goal trackers in, in that task under those conditions with that particular population. Hmm. Again, in retrospect, that may make perfect sense. So kids that age, um, I'm sure many know that they're more likely to kind of um, use their hands to explore things and to approach and interact with things. And from a neurobiological perspective, we know that their cortex is not yet developed to inhibit such responses, right? And so they're not using, they're not tapping into those cognitive mechanisms at that age. Um, yeah. And, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I, I was also thinking that, is there any sort of a cognitive cost rationale here? Uh, I, I would speculate uh, perhaps sign tracking is less cognitively costly. Right. Um, so, yeah, and, and th those were our initial hypotheses based on what we knew from the classic learning literature was that, you know, goal trackers are using more of this cognitive sort of top down learning processes, whereas sign trackers are using more, um, you know, sort of bottom up, what we call bottom up motivational processes. And in fact, um, studies in my laboratory have shown are, are starting to suggest that that is indeed the case. And so, um, it seems that while, you know, these cortical connections, these, these connections from the cortex to subcortical structures like the thalamus or the nucleus accumbens, these cortical connections are really important for encoding that predictive value. So that is um, encoding the predictive value that would drive the goal tracking response. Whereas um, in contrast in sign trackers, what seems to be happening is that even if that those top-down connections are in place for the encoding of the predictive value, what we think is happening is that there's what we call the subcortical overdrive. So these subcortical systems, including the nucleus accumbens and dopamine in the nucleus accumbens are kind of in, in a hyper-aroused hyper state where they're overriding any top-down cortical control mechanisms. And so the ultimate result is this behavioral phenotype of, of disinhibition, essentially. Hmm. So, uh, so, 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 thinking about humans as they get older, 
they tend to um, tend to go more toward goal tracking. Is is that is that true? Right. So that would yeah. be the hypothesis. Is that um, you know presumably as that cortex develops, and mind you, it doesn't develop till quite late. Um, you know, in males, not until um, the twenties, early twenties even, that it's fully developed. But in humans, the idea would be that as that cortex develops and as those connections are being made with the subcortical systems, then they'll be able to better proper, you know, better able to regulate their responses, and um, thereby maybe more likely to show goal tracking behavior when it would be appropriate. It. And one could argue that in a laboratory setting, why would it, you know, why would it ever be appropriate to sign track in that case if you know, if you're able to recognize that the cue is indeed predicting reward delivery and that a response is not required? Yeah, so if I understand this correctly, uh, Shelley, so it's not just top-down decision making, right? Because we we can see that there is no dopamine release. So there is something physical that that happens or does not happen. Right. So, um, I mean, th there's clearly a decision-making component. Yeah. Um, in goal trackers, um, that dopamine seems to be dopamine independent. And mm -hmm. so then the question is, what is mediating their response? And so we've shown, actually, that we can... Um, that is, it is, is in particular a cortical thalamic connection. So in rats, if we turn off that top-down cortical control from, in, in this particular study, it was from the prelimbic cortex of the paraventricular nucleus of the thalamus. If we turn off that top-down cortical control or that cognitive um, control mechanism in goal trackers, now all of a sudden, all of a sudden they'll start to show evidence of sign tracking. They'll start to attribute that incentive value to the cue. Whereas um, in contrast, in sign trackers, if we turn on that top-down circuit from the cortex to the thalamus and we turn on that inhibitory control, now the incentive value of the cue that's already been ascribed, that incentive value that's already been ascribed to the cue is now attenuated. And so they show less sign tracking behavior. Do, do we see the same phenomenon in rats, uh, meaning older rats are more skewed toward goal tracking? Oh, that's a great question. So we've not looked um, at uh, across development in rats in that respect. There have been some studies looking at adolescents um, in rats, and those tend to be more um, skewed more towards sign trackers. Um, but there's not been a systemic systematic study that I know of that has looked um, compared across the eight, the developmental um, time periods, which would be really interesting to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating research. We'll take a quick break, uh, Shelley. When we come back, we'll talk about a couple of your recent papers. Great. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back, uh, Shelley. You were talking about individuals making choices and prioritizing goals using complex processes and assigning value to rewards and associated stimuli. And we talked about sort of a two different types of individuals, the sign trackers and the goal trackers. Uh, the, the former seem to attach, I don't know if it's the right term, uh, attach more importance to the queue, um, more incentives uh, to the queue, I should say. 
Uh, and we know that dopamine is more closely involved in that behavior, whereas uh, goal trackers uh, are more focused on the predictive power of the cue. Uh, and I know that you're working on translating some of this work that was done in, on rats in your lab into human beings. And you have a paper, um, recent paper, mapping sign tracking and goal tracking into human behaviors. Um, so, so, so one uh, um, interesting area to, to think about here, uh, how do, uh, do, do these have some sort of a direct connection to some of the mental um, disorders that we see in humans? Great. Yeah, that's a great question. And so I'm going to actually take a step back and tell you what we know from rodents and why we are hypothesizing what we are regarding the human behavior and the translational relevance. So in rats, I told you about um, how we characterize rats as sign and goal trackers. Um, sign trackers, as you said, are attributing this excessive incentive motivational value to the cue, whereas goal trackers are merely attributing predictive value to the cue. And this was interesting to us, um, as I said, one, because it allowed us to parse in, um, you know, the neurobiological mechanisms underlying predictive versus incentive cue reward learning. But as we started to study these um, behavioral phenotypes more deeply, what we found was that sign trackers are also more impulsive than goal trackers, which may not be too surprising, but um, specifically they're um, less able to withhold responding, even if that means losing reward. And so those, that's how we assess it in the rodents. And so they're more impulsive on tasks of impulsive action. And there's a number of addiction-related behaviors that sign trackers exhibit to a greater extent than goal trackers. So for example, sign trackers um, are more likely to show um, enhanced relapse propensity to relapse to, for example, cocaine-seeking behavior, even following a period of abstinence. And so this um, is in the sort of psychological theories that they tap into, that is an incentive sensitization theory of addiction that um, essentially states just that, that is that um, attributing excessive incentive motivational value to cues associated with drugs is one of the um, you know, underlying mechanisms that contributes to addiction. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's indeed what we were show, showing, but just to one aspect of addiction in the animal models, and that is the enhanced relapse propensity. And so this then and it led us to believe that we're capturing this you know, kind of neurobehavioral endophenotype that may um, represent individual differences in vulnerability to a number of psychiatric conditions. And I say that because, um, as I'm sure you know, there's shared symptomatology between psychiatric disorders, and there's a lot of comorbidity. So individuals with addiction may also have depression or anxiety, or may be more likely to exhibit pathological gambling. And so, um, as I said, there's a number of shared um, psychiatric symptomatologies and comorbidity. And so, again, this led us to speculate that if we can capture this in humans, and in particular in human children, maybe we'll be able to identify this behavioral predictor of who may be more or less susceptible to some of the psychiatric conditions later in life. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. So there, there is some aspect of sort of an immediate gratification here, right, for the right. trackers. Um, and so uh, I wondered, you know, in some sense, they are getting a lot of utility uh, by by being a sign tracker. So even before the reward arrived uh, arrives, uh, they're actually getting some utility by just playing around with the queue. 
and so are they not able to wait for the reward? Is that, is that an answer? Right. So um, that's a great question and a really important point. And so we're lucky in animal models in terms of assessing impulsivity, where we can start to really tap into um, you know, this multidimensional construct of impulsivity. And so you, there's two points there I want to go back to. One is that you said, you know, there's this utility in just interacting with the cue itself. And that's exactly right in the sense that we know that the cue itself is rewarding or reinforcing for sign trackers to a greater degree than goal trackers. That is, sign trackers will work for presentation of that cue alone, even in the absence of reward. And that's one of the fundamental properties of us being able to say this is indeed an incentive stimulus, a cue that's been attributed with excessive incentive motivational value for sign trackers, but not goal trackers. So that's one point I wanted to make. The other is regarding delayed gratification. That was another term that you mentioned. And what we actually have shown in rats is that when we attest, when we test impulsive behaviors in sign and goal trackers, we don't see much of a difference between the two phenotypes in their ability to um, make impulsive choices. And so that is if a rat would um, have the choice between one lever that will give them one food pellet immediately versus another lever, if they respond on it, it will give them five food pellets, but not for you know 30 seconds or 45 seconds. We actually don't see a difference in those choices that are made um, between sign and goal trackers. Where we see the differences on tests of impulsivity are specifically with impulsive action. So now, if they're in the chamber and they're given a task where a lever is presented and now it's presented for a certain amount of time and they have to withhold responding. So even though the lever is there, they can't respond on it until they wait five seconds in order to get the reward. What we see is that sign trackers are unable to wait those five seconds. So they are impulsive in the sense that they are unable to withhold um, that responding, even if it means losing a reward. So we don't actually see differences um, between sign and goal trackers in the rat model in you know, tasks of delayed gratification, um, but we do see differences in tasks of impulsive action. Yeah. Um, I don't know this uh, this was done, Shelley. So how long would it take, you think, if you take a sign tracking rat and uh, in an experimental setting, you know, uh, you condition that as you would typically do, and then at some point you stop the reward completely? Uh, how long will it take for it to essentially stop interacting with the queue? Right. So we know it takes a lot longer for a sign tracker to do so than a goal tracker. And so this is what we call extinction. And so now if you remove the reward and you look at their, um, you have them undergo trials of extinction training, what you see is that there's a big difference in that extinction curve in sign trackers relative to goal trackers when the task is following Pavlovian conditioning. And so um, it will take several sessions in order to completely extinguish that condition response. So, so this has some implications, as you as you mentioned, for addiction, mm -hmm. and and so from a from a treatment modality perspective, it, it appears that you have to deal with um, these 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 groups of people slightly differently, right? If if they if they have an addiction problem. Exactly. Um, so what's really interesting is I, I told you how sign trackers show this enhanced relapse propensity um, yeah. and what we call reinstatement of drug seeking behavior following experience with the drug. And, and most of these studies have been done with cocaine thus far. But um, 
I didn't tell you the other part of the story, which is that goal trackers, um, if you're now using contextual cues, so the context or what we call occasion setters in the field, if you're using these contextual stimuli rather than discrete stimuli to see how that affects your behavior, goal trackers are more likely to seek drugs and reinstate drug-seeking behavior in ex with exposure to the context. So as I alluded to it before, where they're using this you know, sort of cognitive regulation and part of that may encompass you know considering the entire context in which they're in to regulate their responses well in these animal models what that means is that in, with exposure to the context and contextual cues you see enhanced relapse propensity in goal trackers whereas in sign trackers you see it in this enhanced relapse propensity in response to discrete cues and it's a really good illustration um, of individual differences in vulnerability to addiction and recognizing that you need to have, um, you know, personalized medicine is what we call it, but you need to have different treatment options for different individuals. So an individual with addiction is not the same as the next individual with addiction. So the reasons they became addicted in the first place will differ and the treatments that's going to help them is going to differ as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. So it, it it seems like you could develop some diagnostics, right? I mean, it doesn't seem too difficult to identify. I mean, if you're looking for just sort of a binary sort of a classification, that's that doesn't seem too difficult from us from a you know sort of a survey or something to uh, to come up with a diagnostic. I would think, right? Right. Um, you know, that's a hope. And so, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe we started way too complicated and trying to adapt our animal model. And it's a matter of a simple survey. But, you know, that's exactly what we're doing is we're trying to take advantage of all the different ways that we can record um, data from humans, whether it's, you know, sort of mimicking what we're doing in rats or taking advantage of um, smartphone capabilities and recording behaviors or, or checking in with individuals. But that's the hope moving forward is that we'll be able to find something that we think is tapping into these same sign and goal tracking um, phenotypes that would then allow us, you know, perhaps to predict what who's going to develop a psychiatric condition, but perhaps more importantly, um, how they should be treated. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, from a personalized medicine perspective, there are multiple attributes here of interest, right? One is potentially a treatment time, duration of treatment. Mm -hmm. That would be different. As, and as you men mentioned, uh, how they relapse, uh, that the two groups relapse are quite different, it, it seems, right? One is more physical, another is more mental. And so, and so sort of the, the, the risk management post-treatment could be quite different for the, the two groups. Exactly, exactly. It's, uh, it's really interesting, really interesting area. You have another uh, recent paper, um, uh, paraventricular thalamus is a critical mediator of top-down control of Q-motivated behavior in rats. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you talk a little bit about this. So you say cues in the environment can elicit complex emotional states and thereby maladaptive behavior as a function of their ascribed value. Uh, you say here we capture individual variation in the propensity to attribute motivational value to reward cues using sign tracker, goal tracker, animal model. So um, the, looking at the thalamus as sort of the, the control mechanism here that, that sort of mediates this behavior? 
Right, right. So, um, yeah, these studies, the, the paraventricular nucleus of the thalamus um, came out as one of the, you know, quote, hot nuclei in terms of what was lit up in the brain that differed between cyan and gold trackers. And, you know, classically, the thalamus is considered a relay station, but I think as we're getting um, all of these advanced um, techniques and technology to probe the brain deeper than we have before, we're realizing that thalamus is quite complex and likely involved in many um, sort of emotional and motivational responses. And so it's a very, if it is a relay station, it's a very important one and very complex one. And so what we've discovered with our work is, is that um, the paraventricular nucleus of the thalamus seems to be particularly important for um, sign and goal tracking behavior and for regulating the incentive motivational value of the reward cue. And I spoke a little bit about this before, where in particular in our most recent paper, we showed that the input from the prelimbic cortex to the paraventricular nucleus of the thalamus, what I'll call the corticothalamic connection, is important for encoding the predictive value of the cue and perhaps um, putting some inhibition on the incentive value. But what's happening in sign trackers is that they seem to have this subcortical overdrive that's overriding any of this corticothalamic input regulating the predictive value. And that's what leads to the sign tracking response. Mm. On, on a bigger picture, I'll say that this has led me to hypothesize that um, perhaps this um, paraventricular nucleus of the thalamus is this critical node, not just for sign and goal tracking, but for psychiatric symptomatology. And so the um, I'll, I'll refer to it as the PVT. The PVT, the paraventricular thalamus, sits at this critical um, junction in the brain where it gets input from um, brainstem arousal um, structures, um, the locus surrealis, the dorsal raphe nucleus, and it, and it gets this input as well as input from motivational centers like the hypothalamus, um, regulates feeding and regulates sleep. And it takes all of this input as well as that from the cortex and it integrates it. And so I, I think that it acts as sort of this way station to determine what's the most important and what am I gonna use to then guide the behavior. And so it has connections, output connections to important structures like the nucleus accumbens that we talked about previously, where it can then send this information that it integrates, decide what it's going to send, send it to the nucleus accumbens, and then get this output um, behavioral regulation. Mm. And so, you know, for example, I think what could be happening is that it, this relay station or this way station, however you want to refer to it, this fulcrum of balancing this cortical cognitive control mechanisms and these subcortical motivational systems is critical for um, psychiatric conditions and treatment. And so you can think where that imbalance um, may be manifesting in different symptomatology. So for example, if you have perhaps more cortical regulation and less drive of the motivational systems, you may have anhedonia characteristic of depression. Mm. Um, if you have this you know, overdrive of the subcortical systems, you may have um, and, and, and less input or less drive from these cortical cognitive control mechanisms, you may um, suffer from symptomatology of um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And so those are just two examples, along with the impulsivity that we talked about and um, addiction that we talked about previously. Yeah. So as you, as you say, uh, Shelley, PVT is sort of an integrated decision maker. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, um, so, so you, you mentioned sort of the domination of PVT versus other systems, and that sort of results in different disease states, possibly. But there is also a timing issue, right? If the if the PVT decision doesn't appear 
Uh, I'm just making this up. I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, doesn't appear optimally. Then the other system will, you know, sort of run away with the uh, uh, with the behavior. Yeah, no, that that's very true. And there's a lot to be um, elucidated with um, the PVT and what exactly it's doing. And there is actually some evidence to suggest that that timing is very important, um, especially in regulating both. Um, it's also involved in aversive or fear fear regulated behaviors as well. And so um, you're you're right. I mean, there's definitely a temporal component to it to it. And if that's off, um, I think the the interesting question is why is that off, and why is it le then leading to these other behaviors? Yeah, and so that might give us some clues about intervention. So I'm, you know, thinking back again, addiction. Um, so, so we know that you mentioned this: the, the dopamine uh, levels are reduced. You have you have different sort of behavior there. Uh, do we have some set of um, you know sort of interventions that that therapeutic interventions that might uh, that might be beneficial? Right. So um, I think, you know, when, when I think of it, what I, um, if, if this turns out, the PVT turns out to be doing um, even half of what I think it's doing, I think it would be an excellent target um, for, you know, things like deep brain stimulation that you could eventually use in human subjects. The the tricky part, especially with, um, there, there's a few levels of complexities here. So one is the thalamus is a relatively deep structure for things like um, um, deep brain stimulation and it's difficult to target, um, but it's doable, I would imagine. Um, I don't work with human subjects in that regard, but um, that, that would be one option. And so, um, you know, there's studies going on with things like transcranial magnetic stimulation that's targeting more cortical areas. So maybe we would take it up a level to the cortex to see you know, ideally we'd be, be able to specifically target those um, cortical regions that are sending input to the paraventricular thalamus, um, that, but, but that may be a stretch with the technologies currently available. I don't necessarily think it'd be a stretch, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now. I think, um, especially in terms of neuroscience um, treatments and therapeutics, anything's gonna be possible relatively soon. And so those types of brain manipulations in humans um, would be possible, but you know, you have those sort of technical complexities, but also the complexities of the PVT as a structure. So one, we don't know a lot about it in humans. Um, there was a recent paper outlining the functional connectivity in humans, and that was one of the first. And that's because um, previously with imaging techniques, it was really hard to target specific nuclei of the thalamus, um, but now we're getting better in that regard. And so I told you how it sits and it receives input from so many regions and it sends output to so many regions and all of this interacts to guide um, and regulate behavior. And so I imagine with these sort of larger scale approaches in humans, it's gonna be difficult to to get that resolution that we can get in rats and that we know is necessary to specifically affect these behaviors or to specifically affect dopamine release to a reward or to a reward associated cue. Yeah, I'm also thinking, Shelley, that it has some implications from the criminal justice system. Uh, we know that the young adults behave in, in certain ways. Um, and, um, you know, increasingly there are questions around uh, who is responsible for the crime. The, the more important uh, question uh, could be that if we identify individuals who might be at risk uh, mm -hmm. from type of activity, could we do something about it before, <laughs> before a problem happens? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and, and so 
there's there's been studies in the past where they've used um, you know behavioral marker, markers in children. So I'm thinking of Watcher Michelle's work with the marshmallow test that you may be familiar with. And what he showed was that you're able to predict a number of things by assessing whether or not children are able to withhold responding in a test similar to what I told you with rodents. So if they're put into a room where they're now um, so, you know, a marshmallow is, is put in front of them and they say if they're able to um, pre prevent themselves from responding and consuming that marshmallow for a certain amount of time, then they'll get, you know, two or three more marshmallows. And so this marshmallow test became um, a, a big behavioral paradigm that was used developmentally to then later see what that predicted. And so there's um, some controversy surrounding this test and the outcomes, but essentially it was used for, for that, which is that, you know, if you can use these types of behaviors that are evident early on to predict who may or may not um, develop behavioral disorders later in life, is there something we can do about it? And now that we're using such tasks to get at the underlying brain mechanisms, I think you're exactly right, is that eventually maybe we'd even not just be able to use behavioral and cognitive types of therapies to prevent um, such things from happening, but also perhaps brain manipulations. Yeah. Uh, do you see uh, gender differences in animal models as well as humans? Um, yes and no. And so if we look at a very large population of rats, what we see is that um, female rats for in the general population of thousands of rats tend to be skewed more towards sign trackers um, than, goal tr than goal trackers. But if you look at just sort of raw levels of responding between male and female sign trackers, for example, there's not much of a difference. So on a population level, yes, female rats tend to be skewed more towards sign trackers in rats. Um, but then, then their male counterparts. Um, in humans, we've only looked so far at the five to seven year old population. And what we found there was that there's absolutely no sex differences. And I was actually having had kids around that age when we did those studies and, and having been around both the boys and girls of that age, I was somewhat surprised um, by that. Hmm. Yeah, and there is also a maturity question, right? I think it's uh, conventional wisdom. I don't know if this is true or not, that girls mature faster. Right, and, <laughs> and that's exactly why I thought that, that we would see differences. Um, so. <laughs> In five to seven year olds, we don't. Um, I'm really interested to see um, whether or not sex differences emerge in nine to 13 year olds. Yeah, and um, if, you, if you see the sort of a cohort based studies, whether you see, you know, sort of percentage uh, differences in different age cohorts, you know. Mm -hmm, exactly. That would be quite an interesting, interesting right. thing as well. And so in conclusion, Shelley, you know, um, I know that your lab is doing a lot of work in this area. Um, if you look forward five years, uh, where do you think uh, we could take this to, you know, to some, we, we talked a little bit about therapeutic interventions. We talked a little bit about perhaps diagnostics and uh, those types of things. Where do you think you will take this to more from a practical perspective to have the highest impact? Right, so my hope is that we'll be able to, in the next five years, determine what that task or that measurement is in humans that will allow us to confidently say, um, this individual is exhibiting sign tracking tendencies and this individual is exhibiting goal tracker goal tracking tendencies. And then um, I think most, most the most utility will come from then using that data, um, not just to make predictors of who may or may not be more vulnerable to a mental illness, but really to use it in, in determining the best um, ther therapy and therapeutic outcome for those individuals.
Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Shelley. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.